Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Cities Chronicles, your podcast for everything smart cities, action, investment, and outcomes. My name is Adam Beck. I'm host of the Chronicles, and my day job is Executive Director of the Smart Cities Council here in the Australia and New Zealand region. Welcome to episode 75. Now, normally, I would be the one sitting down uh, interviewing and having a conversation uh, with our guests that we bring on to the podcast, but today, I hand over to our CEO at the Smart Cities Council, Philip Bain, uh, who is sitting down with Carlos Rivera, who is the Chief uh, Data Officer at the Commonwealth of Virginia in the United States. Uh, This is a fantastic conversation around not only data trusts, which is a very uh, important topic dear to the heart of the Smart Cities Council, but also the journey by which Carlos has been able to uh, move the organisation through a process of capacity building, shaping policy, and of course, creating some fantastic outcomes, including standing up a data trust for COVID-19 related data uh, in a very swift, short period of time. So looking forward to sharing this episode with you. Uh, Remember to stay, uh, stay tuned for another episode, but for now, I'll hand it over to Philip. Uh, we have Carlos Rivero, the Chief Data Officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia, and Lauren Gonzalez, out of the Chief Data Office, uh, with us today. And um, so, Carlos, um, really appreciate your time and effort here. Um, could you give us an overview of um, how you got into this position and what were the skill sets? And if somebody was looking to do something similar, um, either in terms of hiring a Chief Data Officer for their state or city, or possibly looking for that kind of job, how you see that position and and how you have been able to fill that role? Well, Phil, I mean, I, I think we're gonna need a, quite a bit of time to go over that, but because uh, the journey is long and, and there's a lot of uh, hardship along with it. Um, I started my journey uh, as a uh, research scientist working for the University of Miami, uh, the Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science, uh, the Graduate School for, for Marine Science, uh, doing GIS and, and building spatial models, tying in a variety of different, um, you know, simulation models and, and fate and transport models and things like that for large-scale marine ecosystems. And so that gave me quite a bit of experience in integrating data at a very hands-on level. Um, and through that experience, I, I eventually went and, and was a physical scientist uh, doing scientific computing and the same type of work for NOAA Fisheries. So again, tying in data from a variety of different uh, parts of the organization uh, for large scale marine ecosystems and and the modeling and understanding and management of those ecosystems. Uh, So if you can imagine, you're looking, you're talking about data like weather data and coastal ocean data and then biological data from sampling surveys to census to a variety of different uh, data platforms, both in situ and, and remote, um, and just looking at the wide variety of technologies that are involved in being able to collect those data assets, integrate those data assets, manage them, bring them together, make them make sense so that we can then interpret them, you know, creating that information, creating that knowledge, creating that intelligence that allows us to make better decisions about how to manage those large scale ecosystems. And I did that for about 15 years uh, before I went over to the US DOT in their Federal Transit Administration where I was the head of their business intelligence program, but also I was the chief data officer and their chief enterprise architect. 
So I really had kind of the full cradle to grave control over how data is created, acquired, managed, and then ultimately used within that organization. Um, and I did that for about two years and really built up not just the capacity, the technical capacity to do the work, but also the, the people skills in, in getting people to participate and cooperate and collaborate on bringing their data assets together and being able to leverage them uh, to inform uh, executive level decision making and, and throughout the throughout the organization, not just the executive level, but at the tactical and operations level as well. And that really led into this position, which is the chief data officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia, um, building out not just the technical capacity of how to get data integrated and shared amongst a wide variety of disparate uh, users, but also the people uh, aspect of it, the organizational aspect of it, the cultural aspect of it. Um, I think that those, those issues are the biggest issues that we have to solve as CDOs. The technology, having the technology under our belts is absolutely critical, being able to understand what are the limitations and constraints that we have to work with from a technical perspective, but that's relatively easy compared to the relationship building and the consensus building and the collaboration or the development of a, collaborate, a collaborative environment to help facilitate uh, data sharing and then ultimately analytics and intelligence. Um, so, you know, my, my background has a lot of technical capacity in it, uh, capacity building in it, but at the same time, there's a lot of people and relationship building in there as well. And so my advice to anyone wanting to pursue this career is, you know, not just get the technical background. I mean, that's great to have, and you need to have that in your pocket for sure. But um, you, you also need to build up significant people skills, significant leadership skills, uh, have the integrity and the trustworthiness that people will, you know, will be inspired by, you know, by your actions and, and the things that you do. But and also learn about business. Be interested. And when I say business, I don't mean business like business management. I mean the mission, the business of the organization that you're working for or working with. Um, you know, really dig down into their operations, their business processes, and get to understand how things flow. Um, I learned a lot about this from my systems ecology background and looking at how systems work and all the different components that are involved in making a system or making an ecosystem operate and I take kind of like that same thought process into working with organizations and getting a better understanding of how they operate, where the inefficiencies are and how can we improve them. And being able to bring that to the table is, is ultimately one of the critical success factors um, that will allow you to, to have uh, success in this, in this position. So, um, yeah, I, I knew you were a systems thinker and my favorite um, uh, sort of lesson from systems thinking is that today's solution is tomorrow's problem. Um, and that sort of leads to my next question, which is, so you started, I think, the position a little over two years ago, maybe maybe two and a half, um, close to three years. I think it was July 2017 that you started, if I remember correctly. Actually, um, it, was, it was August 2018 that I started. Oh, okay. So it is two years, a little over two years. Okay. A little under two years. Um, man, you've gotten a lot done in those two years. So what was the situation? Yeah, what was the situation in Virginia when you started? I mean, it was great that they hired you, but you must have walked into sort of uh, a vacuum, or, or how would you describe it? I, I, I describe it as a blank canvas. Um, and, and I had this question asked of me very early on when I first started. And they're like, well, how much staff do you have? 
and and how much funding do you have and and at that time i had zero and zero um and, and of course the the immediate response is like oh my god like how do you how do you come into this position with zero resources and and you know really you know like, didn't anyone not think to uh to provide you with resources at the beginning and i said yeah you know you can think of it that way but the reality is that you know all all organizations are culturally different and you can't automatically assume that you know coming in on day one you know exactly what that organization needs and so therefore coming into this position i couldn't really say well i need this many people i need this much staff i need you know this this amount of money because we don't really know i didn't really know yet what the culture looked like what the organizational needs were like so it took a little while of listening and feeling out the organization to get a better handle on what our what our needs truly were what where do we need to spend and invest our resources in to get the best outcomes and so one of the first things i asked is you know what does our data inventory look like um and of course at that time there was no data inventory um so i said well first on the list we have to have a data inventory but it's not just let's go out and run around and, and, and just create a data inventory let's really think this thing through and figure out what are the what is the best way for us to execute on the data inventory, but that provides the most value possible across the Commonwealth. And one of those things, one of those value propositions is being able to communicate the importance of understanding your data assets and being able to have a good grasp of what, 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 is, on, what is in our data inventory, but also how can we leverage those data assets to make better decisions. And so it isn't just going out and creating a data inventory and having that as a deliverable. You know, that is a product, but the process by which you execute on that product is more important than actually having the product itself. And so what I what I did was I really sat down and thought about, okay, where were we from a Commonwealth perspective? What technologies do we already have access to that we can leverage? What capabilities do some of the agencies already have that we can take advantage of? And then start building out from there um, and looking at what are, what investments can we make that are really going to create enterprise capabilities at a minimal cost across the Commonwealth that everyone, including those agencies that don't have resources, can participate in. And so that that essentially was my, my blank canvas, if you will, being able to come in and have total freedom on where do we need to move next, how do we need to execute. Now, mind you, when, when my position was created by the General Assembly, they put in the statute, um, that I needed to work with the Data Sharing and Analytics Advisory Committee. Well, so I needed to stand up that committee, which is a, an executive committee of leaders across the state government to start talking about the permanent data governance structure for the Commonwealth. But also they mandated that I work on an opioid pilot project. Um, so those two things really came together nicely for me in that you know, there, were, there were great uh, you know, directions to go, to go in to be able to start looking at how do we develop out our data sharing and analytic capabilities throughout the Commonwealth in a very focused approach. Um, so those are the those are the main things that I started to work with when I first came on board. And through that, uh, we were able to identify, okay, what projects do we need to invest our, our resources in? Where do we need more governance? How do, who are the key players that need to be uh, that need to be incorporated into the conversation and, and move on from there? So you, um, respectfully, I mean, you call it a blank canvas, but the fact of the matter is, is that you were actually looking at, what, 139 cities and counties, um, over 60 executive agencies, 
Um, I think you did a you 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 were, were instrumental in a report that talked about the Commonwealth having like close to 1,700 separate enterprise data assets. So, so you actually came into a situation where data there were data assets and they were being used. Um, and somehow your job was to do what? Change it? Facilitate it? Um, I, I know you've talked, when we've talked a lot about data sharing. So how is that key? Um, and how do you sort of get from where the Commonwealth was two years ago to where you're trying to go? So I would call it more like catalyze and enhance data sharing across the Commonwealth. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. There was already uh, there were already a there was already a data systems inventory, but not a data inventory. So being able to leverage the data system inventory to help identify who are the data stewards for each of those different data systems, build out that contact list, and then be able to reach out to those data stewards to start participating in the data cataloging effort. Um, in addition to that, there was also a report, Executive Directive uh, Seven, uh, that was issued by then Governor McAuliffe. Um, about you know what are our data assets and, and that's where the data systems inventory came from um, but also in that data systems inventory they were able to highlight you know of the different data systems what percentage of those enterprise data assets were being shared outside of the source agency and I think that that value is about 20 22 percent something like that um, so it, we already had a baseline of data sharing and there had already been there's already been a consistent history of trying to move the needle on data sharing and analytics within the Commonwealth. I mean, there have been many folks before me um, that have been pushing this boulder up the hill that, that ultimately culminated in the creation of my position. Um, but that, you know, these were all very ad hoc um, approaches to data sharing and, and, and data analytics, right? It was all based on a particular agency's need, and it was almost like reinventing the wheel consistently over and over every time a new agency needed to share data with another agency. And a good example of that is like BDH, right? The Department of Health has a vast array of data sources that multiple agencies and localities would love to have access to. And so through their business processes, as data sources were identified by other agencies for sharing, like for example, uh, DMAS, the Department of Medical Assistance Services, or uh, DBHDS, Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, or criminal justice services or social services, like all of those different agencies have a need to utilize in some shape or form data from VDH, from our health department. But every time that there was um, that need identified, they would go into this whole data sharing agreement approval process. But it would it would be an, an ad hoc process. So every time they do it, it'd be a separate endeavor. And they would get the office of the attorney general involved and, and obviously various attorneys engage in the conversation and it would take anywhere between six to nine to 12 months of negotiating each individual agreement, right? So what you have is a point to point network sharing of data assets that's not very efficient. Um, so one of the things that, that I realized coming into this position is yes, we do have some data sharing going on and it's great that it does exist, but it's very sporadic, it's very ad hoc, it's not controlled, it's not governed. And so we need to be able to govern data sharing across the Commonwealth and re-engineer that architecture so it becomes more of a hub and spoke type of model. And therefore, we created the Commonwealth Data Trust that allows us to utilize the office of the chief data officer as the trustee that is the recipient of data assets from a wide variety of organizations. And through my office, we can then help back 
which agencies would like and localities and organizations, research institutions and academic institutions, non-government organizations can also participate in the data trust as users or recipients of data. And so we created this data trust model that allows us to share data through the trustee without having to renegotiate these data trust agreements every single time a new recipient is identified. Now I do have to say that the first original data trust, although it wasn't called the data trust, but the original data trust in the Commonwealth was the Virginia Longitudinal Data System created by Chev and about nine other partners about nine years ago. Uh, so this data system integrates a variety of educational and employment outcome data to help identify how our employment services, the services that we offer, the educational services rather, that we offer results in employment outcomes for Virginians, right? And so being able to look at the, the longitudinal data associated with a particular student's academic history and then their employment outcomes um, was the driving force behind the VLDS. And this system has been in operation for a good number of years. And, um, and so they had not just a data trust, they didn't call it a data trust, but essentially it was a data trust where Chev, uh, the State Council for Higher Education of Virginia, was the trustee in, in essence. And they also have a data governance council and then they have a charter. So they've been operating kind of in the shadows, so to speak, with a, a governance framework that has been exemplary um, for not just the Commonwealth, but across the nation. And so it, was, it wasn't it was very difficult for me to see that model and be able to scale it out to something that we can leverage across the Commonwealth. So it sounds like, uh, I mean, this is interesting, but it goes back to your point about culture. It sounds like the way Virginia was treating data prior to 2018 was as if it was a hot potato and your your approach is no it's an asset right right and in some cases like you know it's funny because um when you talk to you know security folks or information security folks data is almost a liability because it's a point of vulnerability right. <laughs> yeah that, exactly you know, that we we need to kind of like oh right uh, protect it and hoard it and keep it in the closet and not share it with anyone and so, you know, this approach is vastly different because, you know, we're looking at data as an enterprise asset. And it's not something that belongs to a particular organization or a particular agency or particular locality. It's something that really belongs to the taxpayers of the Commonwealth, you know, our constituents that are contributing their hard-earned dollars to the operations of, of our state government. And that it is, we're entrusted with making sure that we're making the most value out of those resource dollars that are being provided and so the only way to do that is to really facilitate as much as possible in as much legal uh you know uh, capabilities as possible our our data or the data that we're collecting because it costs money to 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 you know acquire data assets right it, these day you know these systems don't run by themselves there there are people that manage the data systems that that, that operate there's you know uh computer systems and hardware and software that need to be purchased to run these things. So, you know, these these systems that are generating this data, that are collecting this data for us and managing, they cost a certain amount of money. And, you know, we have to justify why we're, why we're spending this money on these different systems. And so that goes back to that data value chain uh, discussion that I normally have in, in, in many of my presentations where, you know, the value of those data assets as they're, kind of, as they're collected, right, the binary representation of what's happening in the real world, those bits and bytes that are sitting in a computer system somewhere, there's a value associated with that inherent 
inherently because of the uh, amount of money that we spend to manage that system, right? Not just not just the hardware and the software, but also the people and all the other stuff that goes into managing those systems. But then we want to be able to extract as much value out of that investment as possible. And that value really comes when you share the data. Um, you know, the first set of values that we get is when we interpret those data assets, those binary, you know, values into information, right? So we interpret it from a particular perspective. We get a better idea of what's happening, what are the trends and patterns associated with those data sets. And then once we get a better understanding that we assimilate that into knowledge, but then that knowledge doesn't become intelligent until we incorporate it into our decision-making framework. And then the more we share, the more of that value chain occurs. Um, so that's really what my position is all about, is taking that value chain and multiplying it for every single data set that we have as many times as I can possibly think of, because the, the more that I multiply that, the more value we get out of those out of that system. So the idea there is that uh, data produced by one agency or community could be used by another and then combined with a third or a fourth to create maybe a new data set and new value? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more we share it, the more value we generate. The, there's no doubt about that. And um, and specifically, I mean, you've focused, I mean, I think in the authorizing statute, your focus is data governance. So, it, and it's supposed to be Commonwealth-wide. So the whole idea is making the data across the, through all the multiple public agencies more valuable to everybody, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, you leverage some other people's work, but also you just, in passing, you mentioned that opioid, uh, opioid data trust. And this is something I've talked to you about before. Could you go into that a little bit? Because I find that to be a really interesting use case around data governance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like I said before, the legislation, the legislation that created my position mandated that I work on an opioid pilot project to demonstrate the value of data sharing and data analytics to solve a real-world, complex, multidisciplinary problem. Um, so fortunately for me, as I was coming on board, uh, the Department of Criminal Justice Services uh, was uh, going into a partnership with uh, Clarion, one of our, one of our vendor partners, um, to kick off an opioid project or an opioid pilot project in the Winchester community in the northwestern uh, Virginia, North, uh, Shenandoah Valley. Um, and so just as they were kicking that off, I was coming into uh, state government and we've been attached at the hip ever since. Um, that project, because of the private partnerships that you know needed to be engaged in this, in this uh, project, because the data sets that we were looking at for the Winchester community were not just you know, from state agencies like DCJS and, and, and some others, but there was also the local health, uh, the local health district, uh, data. There was community uh, community service board data. There was uh, local um, the local jail data that we were uh, we were looking at. There was also the local uh, law enforcement, um, as well as the local healthcare system. So you know these are not typically you know state government organizations. Uh, so these local organizations needed to have a place to be able to uh, access and place their data assets in an environment um, that not only was secure but would allow access uh, to, to the localities and the private healthcare organization to be able to, to place their data in that environment. And so we, it, we engaged with another uh, technology partner called Socrata to leverage their secure uh, connected government cloud to be able to uh, create that environment, that platform, that common platform that would allow us to place all of our data 
into into that one environment and then build analytics on top of that build warehousing on top of that build out our machine learning algorithms and then our intelligence platform from there um, and so in in that process um, the key here is to be able to engage our community leaders and community partners and empower them to make decisions at their level wherever whatever their level was whether it's operational tactical or strategic being able to give them access to the tools and the data that you know would it would allow them to make better decisions and in so doing identify what some of the parameters are that are you know kind of leading indicators of opioid use and, and misuse in a community and where and how they can respond accordingly so this was this was mostly was it all public data that was just held by these disparate entities and by combining it it increased the value or were there private sources also private well sources so yeah these are private uh data sources so there were some when we say public um there we need to be able to differentiate because when you say public most people think publicly accessible um but you know some of these data sets were publicly derived or derived with you know, public uh, taxpayer dollars. Uh, so in that context, yes, uh, quite a few of them, I'd say maybe about 60%, maybe 70% were uh, generated by public dollars, but you know, they weren't necessarily state government organizations. There were local government organizations um, that we needed to work with that weren't necessarily part of the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, or we call the COV network. Um, you know, our state and, and, of, of assets. Wasn't some of the data also possibly private data? Because you mentioned criminal yes. and, and health. Yes. Yeah. So there's so, definitely so you quite had a the, bit of you private had the complexity. Data. Yeah, exactly. So you had the complexity of not only disparate sort of custodians for the data, but then the data itself had its own privacy or other types of confidentiality restrictions, right? No, well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we call these restricted use data sets. Um, right, where okay, they're yeah. not just openly available, you can't just share them in the public. There's PII associated with them, or there's other, you know, other uh, constraints imposed upon them that don't allow them to be freely exchanged. So as a result, we needed to identify a platform that allowed us to implement the security controls that we needed to make sure that you know not only was the data secure and, and handled appropriately, but also that we were able to de-identify the data sets, but still be able to link them together. Uh, to make the most uh, informed decisions we can. So yeah, I mean there was there was you know there was there was public data in the sense um, that there was some data that that was made available public and, and was accessible uh, freely or openly, but the majority of that data was was restricted use or private uh, data that we needed to be able to uh, ingest and, and work with. Right. So you had to respect both the legal framework and a technical architecture that allowed you to integrate them without violating the underlying, uh, you know, uh, barriers or boundaries, as you say. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty novel or unique, um, I think you've done it in other situations too, haven't you, beyond op opioids? Oh, yeah, yeah. We've done this for, for the workforce referral portal, um, and we're doing it now, obviously, for COVID-19. Um, so, yeah, there, there have been other places where we've been integrating restricted use data, and then providing vehicles for making it accessible to um, organizations for their use. Okay, so that's really cool. Let's jump then. Okay, so you have this situation where you've got some experience with data trust out of opioid uh, crisis. 
um, you know, you have a legal framework for it, you have a uh, architectural technological framework for it. And so now, you know, COVID-19 comes along. Maybe you can tease out a little bit about how your prior experience now, are you using a data trust in the COVID-19 situation? And if so, how? Yes, we, we absolutely are. And, and before I jump into the how, I think one of the other components um, that, are, that has been critical to, to our success is the governance framework aspect of it. So you mentioned the legal framework, you mentioned the technology framework, but there's also a governance framework. Uh, so from the legal framework side of the house, we have a variety of trust agreements uh, that we've developed in conjunction with the Office of the Attorney General that speaks to the roles and responsibilities of all of the entities involved in a sharing agreement. And when I talk about the entities, I'm talking about the data provider is an entity, so there's a data trust agreement between the data provider and the trustee, which is my office, that outlines our roles and responsibilities, what they're supposed to do, what I'm supposed to do, and how do we define different tiers of data from open, openly available tier zero data to the most restricted tier four data, um, and, and, and outlining that relationship. But then there's also the data trust user agreement, which is an agreement that an organization that receives data, receives restricted data from the data trust, identifies what their roles and responsibilities are and what my relationship is to them and how do I provide oversight or how does my office provide oversight on that relationship to make sure that they're implementing all the appropriate security controls, that all the data is maintained confidential, that they're maintaining privacy. You know, all the, all the things that we're expecting a, an organization to do to safeguard our data assets that we've entrusted them with, that's what goes into the data trust user agreement. But then obviously there are teams of people that work on these projects. And so those individuals need to sign in a data trust individual user non-disclosure agreement so that they as an individual understand their personal responsibility with regards to the confidentiality and privacy of the restricted use data that's being entrusted to them. So that's the legal framework. And then on the governance side of the house, not only do we have a data governance council that governs the operation of the data trust, but we also have an executive data board that consists of executives from those organizations that are providing data into the data trust to oversee the data governance council and the operation of the data trust itself. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's three components here at play that really help to move this whole thing forward. Um, you know, it's the technical framework, the legal framework, but also the governance framework. And being able to have all three operating at the same time is really what allows us to move forward uh, as we've done yeah that's really interesting so how did it um so how did you use this approach with COVID-19 so it we leveraged the data trust agreements and um brought on board VHHA or the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association as a private partner uh, to provide data from hospitals and long-term care facilities into the data trust that we can then build intelligence out of for our state leaders and the unified command and the governor to make better informed decisions. We also uh, built up a partnership with VDEM, the Virginia Department of Emergency Management, to provide data from their uh, systems into the data trust. Um, we're also partnered with the Virginia Department of Health for obviously their COVID-19 data, whether it's individual case data or testing data and giving us uh, a better feel for where testing is occurring and where do we need to implement um, better uh better more more comprehensive testing um we've also incorporated in the virginia uh department of corrections um 
for their their population as well as the the local and regional jail data. Um, so this legal framework has allowed those organizations to see that you know we have really done our homework with building out not just the technical capability but also the legal and the governance side of the house to be able to provide the confidence they need to share their data with us to build out these dashboards and provide the intelligence that we need to make make the most informed decisions we can. So this is really fascinating because um, you had an existing framework. And when you say data trust around COVID-19, did you have an existing data trust, you know, the legal entity, or did you use one that you had already, yeah, did you use one that you already set up or did you create it? So we, we used the legal agreements that we had already set up uh, that I had been working with the AG's office. Um, so those were the legal, that was the legal framework that we put into place. But then we also, the technical platform that we used was the, the FACT platform or the OPA platform. And FACT stands for the Framework for Addiction Analysis and Community Transformation. So that FACT platform is what we leveraged to bring all those data assets into a common environment that we could then share back with a variety of different intelligence teams because it isn't just one intelligence team that's building out these, you know, these uh, business intelligence products or these analytics projects, right? VDH has an intelligence team that absorbs data from a variety of different resources and wants to build out their intelligence to help support their operations. VDM also has an intelligence team. I have an intelligence team. Um, so it's, it's creating that common environment where we can have that single source of truth for all of the different data assets that we're bringing together so that we're all drinking from the same pool. And from that same pool, we're able to create the intelligence products that are most relevant to our stakeholders. So in my case, it's, so, it's the unified command. So let me ask you this, Carlos. So let me ask you this, because this is, again, this is really fascinating. You had an existing legal, technical, and governance framework. <clears throat> you know, you had all the constituent elements. You had used it in the opioid situation out of Winchester. So COVID-19 hits, and you say to yourself, oh, we can go and create a new data set from multiple uh, agencies that will be responsive, that will produce intelligence around COVID-19. Is that an accurate statement? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Now, but again, legally, does it, does it become a separate data trust, or is it within the existing data trust that you did for the opioid crisis? I mean, technically... And that may be a little of a technical yeah, question. But. Yeah, so technically, it's, it's a... Technically, from a legal perspective, it's a, it's a separate data trust because we're still treating it like a project. Um, so, you know, this would be like the fourth data trust we have in Virginia. The first one is the VLDS. The second one was FACT. The third one was the Workforce Referral Portal. And then now the COVID-19 project. And we've been, we've been kind of, uh, we're now like in the toddler phase, I, I, I would kind of uh, ca characterize it that way, where, you know, we've got these different data trusts, where we've got the governance councils for each data trust, right? So they're managed more at the project level. And really from a maturity perspective, now the next step is to make this an enterprise Commonwealth data trust, which is what EO48, Executive Order 48, was really all about. It's creating that Commonwealth-wide data trust that is governed by the Commonwealth of Virginia Data Governance Council, Executive Data Board, and then ultimately the Virginia Data Commission. So all of these different little projects, and I call them little, but they're not really little, but 
in the context of the Commonwealth statewide, you know, these component projects are are inherently the uh, the the predecessor, if you will, for the larger enterprise Commonwealth-wide data governance framework. Um, so ultimately, these you know, the COVID-19, the, the workforce, the VLDS, and the um, FACT project will all be subcommittees of this larger data governance council that would be more enterprise-wide. But we got to work our way towards that. Right? It's not something you can just turn No, I, I understand that. So let me ask you this. I mean, again, I, I'm fascinated by this. Um, two questions, and, and, and you can just, the first question is, is given that you had the existing sort of approach that had been blessed and used previously, how long did it take you from the time you said, hey, we need to create this to the time you had it up and running? Um, and then what were the benefits of taking this approach where you integrated disparate and multiple data sources? Um, the time to being fully operational were days, maybe two or three days. Um, the 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 turnaround time to getting a private partner like VHHA to participate in the data trust, sign the data trust agreement, and start pushing their data into the environment um, was less than a week. Um, that's phenomenal. I mean, that I don't, I don't, I can, I would bet anybody um, that have not have had a relation, a prior relationship with VHHA, have never had any conversations with them organizationally about incorporating any of their data into our environment, starting from absolute zero and being able to ingest data into our environment in, in, a, in a week, um, I think is a phenomenal thing. And, and that all speaks to the fact that we, we had all of these elements in place, um, plus the platform, right? So, you know, and the, and the platform was already VITA approved. You know, we, we had gone through uh, our internal security assessment process with VITA, our, our consolidated IT organization to make sure that you know everything we're doing is above board and and and, uh, and meets all of the the commonwealth security requirements so having all these things in place really facilitated us to be able to jump on this thing extremely quickly and then be able to provide data to those organizations that needed it to make better informed decisions within a matter of days um, and then you know having that then we can start building out okay what are our specific needs and then building out some custom uh, intelligence products that you know really speak to um, what are the different decisions that need to be made. So let me ask you this, and this is a little bit, and you said in a matter of days you were able to get um, better informed decisions. Now the traditional approach in data has been what we call data lakes or data storehouses, data warehouses. This approach really isn't that way, is it? I mean, it, it's kind of sort of is, but um, so, okay, in a traditional approach, you take a long time kind of building out what you think the data lake should be, right? And, um, and so you spend a lot of time in architecture, you spend a lot of time in, in, in looking at um, the flow of data throughout the, the, the pipeline, you take a lot of time in figuring out what are the best structures that are gonna be used to house that data and how are you gonna transform that data to, to you know, allow it to uh, make the most sense to solve a, a specific question. The problem is that we didn't have a specific question. We had a plethora of questions, and and those were all dynamic, and they changed all the time. And 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 the analogy I I like to give is like you're building a bus, while you're still designing a bus, 
while you're driving the bus and you're taking on passengers, right? So you're doing all of these things that theoretically should be linear, but you're really having to do them iteratively because it's just the dynamic nature of the environment you're working in and the response that you have to have. So for us, it was really more about, okay, what do we have in place already that we can take advantage of? How can we just dump this data in this environment and start implementing quality, you know, data quality controls and data security, obviously, um, on this data as we start to make this data accessible? And then you know, make it accessible in a way that is as easy and as machine readable as possible. So one of the things that you know, the, the platform that we leverage for a fact gives us is that once you put data in that environment, you can automatically access it through APIs, right? You don't have to do anything special. The environment already has it built in. All you have to do is register the data asset, put it in there, and it automatically creates the APIs around it. And you tell the recipients what tokens they need to use, and you give them the, the technical information that need they need to connect, and away you're off to the races, right? And so that allowed us to very, very quickly just dump a bunch of data into this environment and start massaging it. And as we're massaging it, people are already pulling it. And they're already using it because they can understand not just you know what are the data elements and how it was structured and, and what were the processes that so what, what's created. integrating the data schemas i mean you have disparate data schemas the platform that you had was it provided by a, a vendor that integrated is there some kind of um uh you know yeah you said id tokens but that would be that would be maybe for personal data let's say you know i'm my social security in one data source, and then I'm my name in another data source. Um, but uh, what was integrating all these different data schemas? So it depends on the data, right? So, you know, some of the data was geographically linked together. So depending on the resolution of that data, we're either linking them through zip codes or localities, localities right, through okay. codes, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, for the individual data, yeah, we do have individual data in there, but it's all de-identified, so we're not matching that up with anything other than doing aggregations by the various geographies, and then being able, and then all, all other qualitative factors like, you know, uh, race and gender and, and age and that kind of stuff, or age bracket, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so really, it's just, you know, looking at, there, there really wasn't an, an integration component per se, because the, the data in and of itself is, is integratable in the sense that they have common fields that you can then summarize by and link together to provide that common view, depending on what data assets you're looking at, right? So some data assets are about facilities, some data assets are about individuals. And so, you know, how do you, how do you integrate those data sets if you don't aggregate up to a common level that can then allow you um, to look at it differently? So what we did was, we allowed you know, all of the data to go into this one environment. We, we, we documented the data assets as they were coming in, right? We were making sure that everyone understood what the limitations were of each of the different data assets, and then made those data assets directly available from the platform to the various constituent users or stakeholders that were building the intelligence products and the analytics, and then they themselves would do the integration on their side, right? So depending on which data assets they were bringing in for which intelligence product, they would then do integration on their side, and we wouldn't have to worry about that. And so the goal there was the data an analytics would be done so as to create visualizations for your decision makers? Yep, yeah, visualizations, reports, dashboards, a variety of different tools to be able to allow the decision makers uh, to make better informed decisions uh, with the data that we have. And so you had this all up and running in roughly a week once you got the VHHA data, is that correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. See, that's really significant, Carlos, and I think you know you deserve a pat on the back, if I may say. I mean, because you had this crisis, uh, many people were wandering around trying to figure out what to do, and you were able to leverage the Commonwealth data assets to actually deliver actionable intelligence to your decision makers. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Um, I mean, it's yeah, just, I think it's, it's very like, cool. <laughs> you know? I think it's very cool, and it and it sets it's really the precedent for where any data enabled organization should 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 look to right should go for because you don't know the next crisis that's going to come up and the question is is can you gather the data and facts on the ground and turn it into intelligence yeah that's absolutely critical and and you're right i mean being able to have the platforms and the and the legal uh framework and the governance framework to help facilitate that has been critical um, and, and being able to do that in, in a quick turnaround. Now, one of the things that I, you know, and, and, I, and I am remiss if I don't say this, you know, one of the things that um, I really wish we could we could move forward faster on is making our data openly available. Um, you know, there's still quite a bit of hesitation from a variety of different organizations on what we can or should make publicly available and who controls what and where. And so there's still quite a bit of that culture to deal with. And unfortunately, I mean, it is, it is what it is. But, you know, when I, when I came into this, this position, one of my primary uh, focus uh, points were making the most capabilities to uh, create internal information-driven uh, uh, information approaches, right? so that you know we can make the best decisions internally that ultimately result in the best outcomes for our constituents public access to to our data sets was is definitely important but it's a it's a secondary uh it's a secondary capability that i've been you know that i've been working towards and uh, and you know although we, we do have an open data platform that we are going to launch uh pretty soon um you know my goal is to ultimately populate that platform with as much open data as we possibly can but ultimately, you know, we have to wrestle with a lot of folks to make sure that, you know, that they are okay with sharing certain data assets at certain levels of granularity with the public. And so there's still quite a bit of that cultural uh, shift that needs to happen um, that, that we're working through. Now, that's, and that's understandable. And it's really, it's the success of something like the opioid 19, I mean, opioid and the COVID-19 data trusts and quick visualization to help decision making that actually get people to start overcoming the hesitation. Um, uh, because if it, if it helps, you know, the, the decision makers and ultimately the citizens of the Commonwealth, then people start seeing that. Um, I really appreciate you letting me dive deeply into this, uh, how you use, I've always been fascinated by data trusts and, and I was really interested in how you know, the Commonwealth possibly would take a different approach with COVID-19. And this is really, um, this has really been useful. And, and I think it provides a roadmap for other types of um, organizations in terms of, um, uh, you know, how they, how they can be more responsive. I mean, I think a big issue now, obviously, is economic revitalization. Right. Are you seeing, are you seeing any work? Uh, let's end up with this one question. Are you seeing any any work there that you're going to be doing, or um, can you take similar approach to what you you did with the the health issues around economic revitalization? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and before I jump into that, um, I want to make a, a differentiation between a data trust and the data commons. 
um, where a data commons, you, you have a variety of different organizations putting their data into an environment and then everyone has access to the same information. So it's not a data trust. A data trust is you have a variety of different organizations that are putting their data into a common environment, but that the access to those data elements is tightly controlled by the trustee and the data provider. So in no way, shape or form, when, when data providers submit their data into the data trust, does that auto automatically mean that everyone gets access to it? Nor does it mean that I have the authority and control to automatically say, yeah, you get access to every, this data and you get access to that data. Um, as a trustee, I am, I, am, I am the steward of those data assets. And then when a request comes in for a particular data element from an organization, a data provider, my role is to engage with that data provider and say, do you approve of this use? And if they do, then we allow the use of that data. And so to that end, one of the platforms that we're putting together and about to launch July 1st is our Data Sage platform, our secure analytics and governance environment, which allows, which facilitates and automates that process where the data providers are putting, the, putting their uh, data into a data trust, not just from a legal and governance perspective, from a technical perspective, Data Sage provides a technical framework that allows organizations to submit requests against that restricted use data that will then be used to you know, route those requests to the appropriate data stewards in, the, in their respective uh, data providers to then say, yes, I authorize, no, I do not authorize. And then that in turn uh, creates an account and allows that data user to submit queries against that data to then pull that, that data down. So that's, that's a huge differentiation between you know what people commonly think of as a as a data trust or, or data commons versus right, what, right. what a data trust actually is, and so in that and regard, I'm and I'm assuming over time that negotiation of the data exchange becomes automated by a set of rules. Is that correct? Well, and, yeah, and that's exactly the point. And so um, you know that's what this environment is supposed to be. You know, Sage is is the environment where we're automating that process, and then ultimately. There, there could be rules that are implemented that says, well, if you're this type of organization and you're asking for this type of data, then the approval is automatic, right? Um, and so those are the things that we're working towards. And so July 1st will be a big day for the Commonwealth where we kick off our Data Sage platform and then we will start populating that platform with a variety of different data assets from across the Commonwealth and then opening up those data assets to be uh, requested by a variety of different organizations and then uh, kick off that, that process. So it's, it's going to be very exciting for us. Um, as That's we move cool. Through, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, very, I'm, very, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little sad because um, I wish that was ready January 1st and not July 1st, right? Because then I would have used it for all the COVID stuff and then it would have been awesome. Um, but, you know, right now, all of, the, all of, all of that uh, work, that data sage would handle automatically, we've been having to do manually. Um, gotcha. Which is kind gotcha. of tough. Okay. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's yeah. where a lot oh. of, you know, errors are made and, and, you know, resources are used, but, you know, that's okay. It kind of gives us some insight as to, you know, really what, what the platform is going to really provide for us as a return on investment, taking away these human labor hours and having to do this manually. But going back to your original question about the economic recovery, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, right now I've been working quite a bit with, you know, the Secretary for Public Safety and Homeland Security and the Secretary for Health and Human Resources and their agencies and their teams to kind of deal with the, the health and public safety response side of, of COVID-19. 
But now we're transitioning over to the economic recovery. And now I'm working more closely with the Secretary of Commerce and Trade and the agencies uh, in that secretariat or that cabinet office to uh, to look at what are the what has been the economic impact of COVID-19 in a variety of different communities across the Commonwealth. Obviously, there are communities that are much more impacted than others. There are communities whose whose uh, the majority of their of their citizens or residents are able to work from home, and so economic impact has not been as significant as those communities where their uh, residents don't often don't really have the ability to work from home. Um, they either don't have internet connections, or they don't have you know broadband or high performing internet connections, or they don't have employment in in a occupation that facilitates or allows for uh, remote work opportunities. Um, so it's now looking at those, uh, that disparity and being able to come up with policies and strategies and solutions to how do we become a more resilient Commonwealth economy, um, empowering everyone to participate in the digital economy that they could then uh, you know, take advantage of remote, remote work or work from home opportunities in, in, in other situations like this. What about the economic effects itself? So you've talked about, obviously, the provisioning of, you know, uh, digital connectivity, which we all know has affected uh, communities differently, also affected the ability to uh, get an education. But yeah. what about, um, like, uh, you know, what's happening on the ground, store reopenings? I mean, is, is commerce and trade looking at or asking you for data? Because most of the data that you would get, I would imagine, about, economic revitalization tends to be dated, right? Um, employment numbers, spend numbers, it's all from a past period. I mean, are, are you looking at all about what you can do going forward to possibly change policies to influence economic revitalization? Well, so one of the things about, you know, obviously looking backwards is looking at how things didn't work, right? And what are some of the issues that we're having that need to be overcome? Um, you know, some of the other data sets that, that we could potentially have access to are, you know, uh, credit card transactions, um, you know, from, from our private, you know, uh, credit card uh, service vendors that, you know, will give us an idea of how much economic activity has increased or decreased in the different communities and look at the disparities between them. Um, obviously, there's tax revenue data that we can look at, but that comes in either monthly or quarterly, depending on when you're required to report. So yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of backward looking stuff, but then being able to um, use that backward looking stuff or that the historical data, when I say historical, I mean, we're really talking about, you know, a month or two, maybe three months at the most in terms of, you know, quarterly reporting, um, and then be able to look at forecasts to, to say, you know, if we continue the status quo, what is this going to look like in you know six months, twelve months, eighteen months, twenty-four months, so on and so forth? What are the things that we need to do now to change how how these communities can respond to or become more resilient to uh, economic um, stressors like like you know the pandemic or others, right? Because there's natural disasters, there's right, all kind of right, stuff that happens right. all the time that we need to be paying attention to. So it's being able to look at those communities that are more resilient and look at the characteristics of those communities and say, okay, well, what made them more resilient versus some of these other communities that weren't as resilient? And then how do we create an environment where 
all communities have the same level of resiliency across the Commonwealth. So replicate some of those either on the ground or policies that are making a community more resilient in one place to other places. Right, but I mean, it's, it's not just looking at the policies because sometimes, you know, these things are just inherent in, in the social structure of that community, right? Right, um, right, And right. so, you know, many times the policy has nothing to do with it. You know, it, it, it may just be that that is an environment where, you know, the, the socioeconomic, uh, you know, uh, con uh, con constituency in that, in that environment, you know, just lends itself to being more resilient because of a variety of historical factors that really has nothing to do with sure. the policy in that area. And so looking at those, those uh, that aspect of the equation and being able to say, okay, well, these are the characteristics of these communities that have been more resilient. You know, they have you know, these kinds of jobs and this kind of, this percentage and so on and so forth. How do we mimic that across other communities that don't have the same the same sure. uh, pattern, right? And then be, right. and that's where the policy development comes into play, right? The 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 incentives that you know to the economic incentives to to develop or, or to develop businesses in those areas or you know there's a variety of different things that go into this um so it's it's not just a matter of looking at existing policies because i think that's to me that's very limited and and not only i mean the policy doesn't always equate the outcome right and so for me i think that looking at the disparity because we need to look at disparity right we know it exists there's no doubt right so it's just looking at where the disparities occur what makes it what makes a community more resilient versus less resilient and in what capacity right and then be able to translate that to policies and strategies that we can implement that would help then augment or enhance all communities abilities to be more resilient to these types of uh, perturbation no i i really appreciate that i understand what you're saying um well thank you uh, we've, we've gone over time carlos i really appreciate your time today